It is indeed, and it's part of the week that I particularly look forward to when my good friends Robert Metz and Jeff Schlemmer join me for the segment of the program we call Left, Right, and Center. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, Jim. Nice to have you here. Um, this morning, uh, initially at least, and we never know where these discussions will go. We don't put a uh, don't put a chain on these guys. The discussion goes wherever it goes, and you're invited to join us for the trip too. If you've got something you want to contribute, a, a question or a comment at any time, feel free to give us a call at six four three twelve ninety or star twelve ninety. But uh, we talked a little bit earlier with London's Police Chief Julian Fantino about the broken window uh, idea, uh, as practiced in a number of jurisdictions around the world. The idea being that if you enforce uh, the small laws, that the big laws will not take care of themselves, but it will help to create an atmosphere in which the law is valued, in which or order, and I mean that in a positive sense, not in a repressive sense, but order in good government, if you will, where it becomes easier to ensure that they will happen. Uh, if you ignore the smaller things, like broken windows and abandoned buildings, for example, and, and, and petty crime, and people get away with it and get the sense that, that they can get away with it, that it leads somehow to a moral deterioration in society. Uh, a lot of people accept that as a given. They believe that the broken windows policy works. Uh, Mr. Schlemmer, you don't think so at all. No, I don't. And, uh, of course, I just uh, finished my term as uh, vice chair of the police board in London. And uh, what I understand the broken window theory to be to say not that you shouldn't enforce all laws because any police officer will say we should enforce all laws. It's a question of should they focus more resources on petty crime as opposed to serious crime. And uh, the New York City experience is, is often touted as an example of how wonderful it is. And uh, the problem with that example is that in New York City, of course, they, they started with a crime rate way higher than Canada that uh, I think you had uh, Chief Fantino on earlier to point out, uh, you know, our, our crime rate is the envy of any American city. We already do things way better than they do down there, and for a variety of reasons. But in New York City, what happened was that uh, Rudolph Giuliani, who's the uh, mayor, was a pros prosecutor, uh, district attorney for many years, strong right-winger, came in and brought in this broken window theory and was going to clean up the city and everything, hired 5,000 extra police officers uh, and uh, basically started sweeping the streets. Uh, last time I was in New York, I saw an article in the New York Times uh, talking about how they were moving street people out of New York and basically what their approach was. And, and the time before that, that I was in New York, there were tons of street people all over the place and there weren't any when I came the, the mm -hmm. second time. Um, but they basically just moved them out of the city. They just took them out to the city limits and dropped them off and said, don't come back. And that was the solution to the, uh, the street people problem. And, you know, the problem with that, of course, is that then they become the problem of all the outlying uh, cities surrounding New York City. The other thing that has happened in New York, of course, is that unemployment has been cut in half, basically, from where it was five, six years ago. Uh, that The thing about the crime rate is that it's so tied up to a whole bunch of different things. That's a factor, for instance. But like to look at the scale of the problem, uh, 5,000 police officers, that's how many Metro or Toronto has in total. So basically, they hired the Metro police force in addition to their existing force to come in. And if you're going to do that, obviously, the crime rate's going to go down. You're going to catch more bad guys. But isn't this less about crime rate going down than about the, uh, the sense of... Uh, of community well-being. I've read a lot about this whole issue, too, and this approach, and, and it seems to me that at the theoretical level, at least, it's less about reducing crime than it is reducing the or, or changing the atmosphere in which crime can flourish. So it's not specifically about, about statistics. It's more about people's attitudes and people's sense of their own community and what kind of community they live in. Well, it depends, again, how you define that, and if it's that it would be nice to have a city where we don't have 
graffiti and stuff like that. It's like, well, that's true, but how much are you going to pay for that compared to other things? And where, where the rubber hits the road for policing issues is how much of an existing budget are you prepared to give up in order to uh, fight petty crime? Uh, and the problem right now, of course, is that most people, uh, when they're faced with that kind of a choice, say, I'm not willing to have a longer response time for a code one emergency. I'm not willing to have less investigation going on of unsolved crimes. In the scheme of things, petty crime is petty, and serious crime is a serious problem. Uh, in, in Canada right now, for example, we've got a massive problem with white-collar fraud. There was a big article in McLean's magazine a few months ago about that, and how the problem is it's extremely expensive to find white-collar fraud because the people doing it are extremely clever. You have to hire uh, CAs uh, with forensic accounting backgrounds to go after them, and, and they say there are billions of dollars being defrauded right now. Uh, but again, the, the, that kind of problem does not create this sense in a community that we live in a lawless community. And I'm not defending it. I'm not saying it's not a serious problem. But in terms of the quality of life and the perceived quality of life, and this is one of the thing this, things that kept coming out of the New York model, for example, when they talked to people in the communities that were affected, what they kept saying was uh, variations on, we feel like we got our community back. These people don't care about white-collar crime. Uh, they're, I think they're prepared to pay the price for white-collar crime because it, you know, in the dollars and cents price and higher prices for commodities and so on and so on because it doesn't affect the quality of their individual lives. Uh, heaven punks in the street corner does. Well, that's, that's a sad thing if that's what they think. If they think that taking billions of dollars away from each of their paychecks each year doesn't affect the quality of their life, I would suggest they're mistaken. When you talk about punks, you know, look at London, Ontario and look at squeegee kids. When was the last time you saw a squeegee kid in London? You know, we may have had a couple at some point in yeah. the last year. But realistically, we've got it right right now. You know, we, we're living the life that New Yorkers would love to live. Bob Metz, do you agree that to taking care of the small, the petty crimes and so on doesn't have much of a relationship to the quality of life in your society? I, I think it certainly would increase the quality of life if you can look after the petty crime and put the same amount of effort into fighting petty crime as you can to major crime, but that's the first question I had to ask myself. When I, when I see the broken window theory, you know, minor crimes should be enforced because big crime flourishes when little crimes go unchallenged. Well, I don't know how anyone can disagree with that in the broader sense of, the, of, of what that says. But do we have the resources to put into this? And what concerns me is that even according to the, the, the newspaper article today, they have noted that the crime rate in New York hasn't changed. Um, Jeff, in his, in his opposition to this whole thing here, really threw a lot of stuff at us. Jeff, you were talking to everything from uh, lack of enforcement to moving street people out, which to me is a whole separate issue if you're assuming right off the bat that street people are criminals. I don't know that that's the case. And unemployment being cut in half in New York. I mean, these are all, all various different social issues, which I don't think um, have a direct bearing on this particular broken window theory. Uh, yeah, and I guess the th what I'm getting at is that uh, when you talk about crime, crime comes from a lot of different places. It's hard to figure out what specifically is the best thing you can do to reduce crime. And when you're talking about uh, a time of limited resources and uh, reallocating existing resources, is it better to put more money into jaywalking and take it out? Because it will come well, from somewhere else. You know, there's, there's other ways to, for example, some of the things are talking about littering, jaywalking, and public urinating. I didn't know this last one was a big particular <laughs> problem, but I guess it must be somewhere. Um, jaywalking, I don't know, you, you can take that literally and they could arrest people any time they cross in the middle of the road or, or are they going to apply that term a little more broadly to mean where you're interfering with traffic? Mm -hmm. Or littering, you know, who wouldn't like to see some litterer 
you know, get his for, you know, you, you see some guy yeah. throwing his garbage out the window and yeah. really, you know, well, it pisses you off. That's yeah. what it does. Well, in Singapore, and for instance, they, they banned chewing gum altogether because of littering people spitting gum on, on the sidewalk yeah. so but that you, you can't buy chewing gum in Singapore. You, you want to know what the problem there is? It would be wonderful. I remember once uh, driving back from Florida, we saw that these these two people in a in a in a car just throwing out all of their their garbage onto the highway. It was amazing. Just tons of garbage. Just I couldn't believe how long they kept doing it. We were driving down this road for about 10 or 15 minutes. So we got really angry. We pulled right up. We we uh, right behind them. We took down their license number. We reported it to the authorities. I think we were just pulling th um through Cincinnati. It was mm -hmm. just going through Cincinnati there. But do we actually believe that anything was done with our complaint or that anybody actually followed up or that anybody was actually convicted? What can you do with that kind of information? Well, it drives you nuts. No well, yeah. So the, the 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 crux of this. What are they telling us? Well, the, the crux of this issue seems to be that that uh, that enforcement. And Jeff, you're quite right about the increase in the number of police officers. But we should notice uh, note that the police department had been chronically underfunded in New York oh, yeah, too. Sure. That five thousand was not like adding five thousand to an already adequate force. No it, question. It, you know, but but the, the the crux of this argument and what Bob Wood is putting forward and what Chief Fantino is saying. Well, I hope we can do this. I hope we'll have the resources to do this. Is is very much an idea. Uh, a societal ideal, the idea that society wants to feel, to feel positive, wants to feel safe. And, and there has been a, a, a sense or a tendency in our governments and in our societies over the last 20, 30, 40 years um, to look less at how people feel about it than to look at the statistics. What do the statistics say? Well, the stats say that in some areas in Canada, crime rates are down, so we should all be happy and excited about that. Well, if you talk to people in the policing business, some of them will tell you, you know, you have to remember that stats, particularly relative to crime, they talk about the crimes we know about. So they don't talk about the crimes we don't know about, oh, the sure. crimes that aren't reported. So we really don't know whether crime is down. What we do know is the public perception is that crime is up. And the public perception is really, that's where the public live. That's what it's all about for them. It doesn't matter whether statistically it's up or down. And, and, that, and that this broken window philosophy, you stop the small crimes, the, one of the biggest things it does is to reinstill public confidence in kind of the social fabric. Well, I'm, I'm sure it would. You know, I have to ask, Jeff, when you're, when you're opposed to this, are you saying that if the police run into some guy urinating in the street, they shouldn't do anything? Well, I guess what I would do is compare that and, and that because we can't stop all crime, we have to decide which crimes we want to go after and also how much we're willing to pay for it. For instance, what are you going to do with that guy? Are you going to give him a fine? Are you going to throw him in jail? If you throw him in jail, well, the jails are full now. We have uh, people who have killed people walking around uh, with electronic ankle is, bracelets. Is this a yes or no? no? Because we can't fit them in the jails. So do you let them walk because so we don't want them walk. Just, uh, to jail? Just get out there in the street, go and pee, and nobody can do anything. Well, put it this way. If the cop isn't doing anything else, you should give him a ticket. If he is to, racing off to a uh, to a 911, he should go to the 911. What about public drunkenness? Do you think that should be permitted? Or, and Again, I, I think that what you're getting at is that you go up a scale of seriousness, and public drunkenness is more serious. Well, than I think urinating in the street is fairly serious, because that would interfere with some people's, you know, use of the street and yeah, the sidewalk, but, but again, and probably somebody doing it is probably drunk anyway. Jail, you know, which is more serious? Killing people is a lot worse than yeah, urinating Who's arguing that? But how many of them are doing that? I mean, how, how many killers do we have walking around because we haven't got the police resources to put them in jail? Well, I can think of one right now. We've got a fellow who's given a uh, two-year home sentence for... Uh, for killing the um, native protester at Ipperwash. Mm -hmm. You know, he was convicted of killing a guy, and he didn't go to jail. So what are we going to do with somebody who urinates in are the street? Are you talking about the police officer? Yeah. 
Uh, I don't think that's the same situation. I, he didn't, you know, go of his own accord to go out there and hunt one guy down and shoot him. I mean, I'm that was telling you that he was convicted of killing a guy. Well, yes, that he was. was. What he was convicted of. And he went through the court system, and that was the well, penalty. Well, Robert Latimer was convicted uh, of killing somebody. He's going to do a year. Do you think that was wrong? Well, again, uh, no, I don't. What I'm saying is that let's get on the scale here. Compare that to urinating in the street. But it's but that's not what it's about. I don't think. I don't think it's about that. It's but what do you do with that guy? With which guy? With the guy who urinates in the street. Well, I think at the very least you give him a ticket. As the chief said, though, the police have their hands tied. If the guy uh, zips up when he sees the officer coming and strolls on down the street, police can't, today the police can't do anything about it. Oh, sure they can. It's a matter of the, of the cop's word against the uh, individuals. If they want to lay a charge, they can do that. But realistically, they will tell you, I think, that they've got a lot of big things happening and they don't have time. So again, it's a question of, I asked the taxpayer, how much more taxes are you willing to pay to, to do something to that guy? Well, maybe that's the question and I think it's a valid one. I'm, oh, ready, sure. I'm ready to pay a lot more taxes to, if my taxes go directly to police. I don't think uh, that you have to pay more taxes and have more police and a bigger police state to deal with problems of this nature. I think that again, we're trying to create the environment we want by forcing it into place rather than realizing that that environment kind of has to exist before we get rid of these problems. And that's a much more fundamental issue. I think that comes down to a basic issue of values. What kind of person yeah. would go urinating in the street? What kind of person does throw garbage on other people's property? Where do those senses of value come from? That's right. Well, Where there's no respect not for other crime. people's properties and, 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 and their right to their own, own selves. And I mm -hmm. think that that part of our environment comes from the increasing socialist attitude we have. We have entitlement to everyone else's thing. That's I'd all part it's of it. increasing intolerance driven by the right wing. But <laughs> <laughs> This is the uh, ever-tolerant left, right, and center on Talk of the Town. 643-1290 is the telephone number. Star 1290 on the Cantel. If you'd like to join Jeff Schlemmer, Robert Metz, and yours truly, Jim Chapman, on the program, we'd love to have you. We pause for a second. When we come back, Gord will be joining the conversation. And joining me this morning, the informative and thought-provoking Robert Metz and Jeff Schlemmer on Left, Right, and Center. And as always, you're welcome to join us. 643-1290 is the telephone number, and Gord has dialed that one. Good morning, Gord. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Yeah, let's get on your conversation there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like uh, the right wings always loves to build jails and throw people in jail. If they want to set an example, one of the things they can do is... Uh, take the people who are high up there committing these crimes of uh, disrespect for uh, property, like pollution, big companies that pollute, mm -hmm. give them a shovel, say, Mr. CEO, you clean it up, or some like the Westray mining disaster to those companies, take the proceeds of their crime away from them, mm -hmm. give their company to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Set an example that way from the top of society. Mm -hmm. Kids, you know, they, they can smell hypocrisy. They say, see, if you got power and money, you don't get touched. You know, if, you, if you're going to do it for one uh, uh, part of society, do it for all. Well, gentlemen, are we, are we approaching this from the wrong end? We are talking about the petty crime, the idea being that if you eliminate petty crime or minimize it, that you create an atmosphere where criminal activity is, is, is not uh, greeted with any kind of welcome at all. Uh, Gord's suggesting just the opposite. Never mind the petty crime. Get the big criminals, and that'll set an example. Well, I don't think we should be distinguishing. If we have too many laws on our books, too many petty laws, because there are such things too, 
that we could be overburdening our whole legal system and police system because there's too many of these kinds of laws. Um, you know, Gord here is talking about the right wing always advocating building jails and throwing people in jail. I'm certainly not in that category. I'm not a zero tolerance type of person, and, and any talk like that scares me. Um, on the other hand, you're talking about pollution and companies who uh, should, you know, return the proceeds of their crime via pollution. I hope you're including the employees of those companies whose proceeds via their wages would also have to go back into fighting that pollution. They should be treated equally as criminals if you're going to treat that, that businessman uh, on that footing at all. Wouldn't you say, Gord? Well, he's the leader. I mean, sometimes you work with somebody, you know, you haven't got as much power as the person. So you think the people leading. who work in factories that have huge smokestacks and things like that, they just aren't aware that there's any pollution or that they're contributing to it? Or you think that the consumer who's buying the product from the factory that creates the smokestack is, has no culpability as well? Should we be going after him too? No, because basically I think... Oh, only uh, the one guy who's, who's providing the goods and services for everybody. He, He's the cr criminal in this case, is he? I'm not well, calling him a criminal. I'm saying if he knows that there's ways to stop his pollution and he does it anyway. I'm talking about, you know, like, there was a, a, a while ago, a uh, year and a half ago, somewhere in Strathroy, they found a building full of toxic waste, and I don't know whatever happened with that. But, you know, who... Who does that? I mean, somebody who just throws away the toxic waste knows what they're doing. It's not like through the well, process of manufacturing. They know what they're doing. Well, and the other thing is that when a, when a, uh, a wealthy person commits a crime, the first thing that comes up in sentencing is this is a uh, uh, upstanding citizen, uh, somebody who's uh, well-regarded in the community and blah, blah, blah. And like, for instance, uh, I remember a case recently where there was a fellow convicted of rape uh, and in, uh, sexual assault, as they call it now. And in this case, the evidence was that it was totally out of character. He was a good community person. He went to church, you know, and that he was an upstanding businessman. Those are all things that judges think are relevant as far as what your punishment should be. He got off without any jail. Uh, that kind of thing uh, really plays into what you mentioned about kids smelling hypocrisy, I think. You're comparing rape to pollution? That I'm saying that if you are if you are wealthy, that uh, you don't get punished in the same well, way as if you're poor. And when I think about who's likely to urinate on the street... In, in everything. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. that's that's a whole separate issue. But, but still, does it has it has does it have as much to do with the wealth itself as it does to its to uh, your productivity in society? Well, I think that, for instance, uh, when I hear talk about zero tolerance on broken windows, I wonder if um, Bob would. I don't know if he has children. If he does, and they break a window, what is he suggesting should happen to them? Because typically, the first thing a defense criminal lawyer would want to do is say, "This kid comes from a good family. This is one of our but, upstanding but, but, citizens." But let's let, let's not miss the point here. Now, the original the original the original idea behind broken windows was not about punishing the people who broke them. The idea was that you were going to get them fixed right away. That that uh, that uh, have a, allowing a window to stay broken created or helped to create this idea that nobody cares, and so more windows would be broken, and eventually all the windows were broken, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It was a downward spiral. Spiral. So it is less about punishing the child who breaks the window than ensuring that the community pulls together and says, well, obviously somebody broke a rule here, but we are going to fix the results of that. We are not. We're not. Going to put up with this. We're not going to put up with the results, and the, and the hope is that it sends the message to kids that people do care, that it is important not to break these rules. But it's also just a point of setting an example, too, you know, like, a, mm -hmm. I, including everybody. It's, it's, it's easy for me to say, I know it's harder to do, you know. Like, yeah. a, but do you disagree with what Bob Metz said, that, that uh, if you are going to go after the, the, the polluter, that you and you're saying take the company away from them or or take the profits away. Shouldn't you also go go after the people who profited from that, the people that worked for them? Well, it depends. It all depends. I'm not even saying taking away from 
the employer if he had no other choice. I mean, like, there's degrees, too, of culpability. Yeah, but the workers, had, the workers had choice, too. They could have said, I'm not going to work for a polluter and could have gone somewhere else. Well, I'm saying that, too, that in the sense that if the employer in his pollution, like, you know, manufacturing, sometimes, yeah, you have waste product. Yeah. If there isn't no other way of getting rid of the stuff, I, you know, I, I empathize with, with the employer as well, the manufacturer. But if it's, uh, how you say, uh, almost deliberate, and, you know, well, I, I don't know that it's ever kind of thing. Then, yeah, I wouldn't say it's ever deliberate. I would say it's mostly economic. And sure, there are always more efficient ways of taking care of pollution as technology increases. But eventually, the cost of that technology is so exorbitant that it defeats the purpose of the product that's being produced, and you can't sell it anymore. Well, no, that's so what you, I'm getting. You can't at. always so use there. the not, best. Not in that sense, but where the man can still make a profit and still not have to, you know, and still be better uh, taking care of, well, of the pollution of the product. Yeah. But instead, just for even more increased profit, where he can still make a profit, but he still does it. Right. Well, you know, if you're talking about the issue of pollution per se, that's simply a property rights issue. And and if you want to solve that problem overnight, you just give everybody their private property rights, and if somebody pollutes your property, you should have the right to sue right. for Gord. damages. That's as simple as you can solve the problem. Gord, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate hearing from you. Thank you, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. 643-1290, star-1290. Guys, I want to pursue that a little wee bit, because I think uh, Gord's kind of opened the door on another area of ethics here. When we talk about responsibility for criminal activities, because that's what he was talking about, you know, cr criminal pollution. Um, Bob, you make the case that you cannot simply um, place the blame on the owner of the factory, that everyone who participates, who profits from that, has to share the blame. And I think there's certainly a precedent uh, there. International law does not recognize the offense that orders are orders. Uh, we showed that pretty clearly mm -hmm. in Nuremberg, and it showed us not, since Not then. even in the military. Yeah, That's right. yeah, yeah. You're, you are, you are not, you are not, uh, responsibility is not lifted from your shoulders simply because somebody higher up told you to do that. Jeff, would you, are, would you argue against what Bob's saying, that if you're going to look for responsibility there, that the responsibility has to extend beyond the owners slash managers to, has to extend to everyone who may profit from an, essentially an illegal activity? Well, yeah, and the starting point is that we're talking about illegal activity, activity that's been defined to be one you're not supposed to do. In that case, uh, my understanding of the way the law is designed to work is to say we want to get at the decision makers, the ones who decided to break the law, and we want to discourage them from doing it again. So in that respect, I don't know how useful it would be to say that everybody in the factory uh, you know, uh, participated in profit or got some pay or something, because I don't know how much control they really have. Well, they have I absolute mean, control. They could walk. Everybody's say, a decision maker. Hey, I thought you guys didn't want uh, people uh, or Every person in a <laughs> factor your company is a decision maker and and but not the, the ones I've worked in. Well, what, what you're talking about is different people in the company are responsible for different decisions. And that's one of the problems is everyone isolates themselves and, and, and specializes so much in one area that they're not always looking at the broader picture. And that, of course, does fall on the higher-ups in the company. But beyond that, pollution means that they are you know, spreading their waste onto other people's property. If they could keep their pollution on their own property and it didn't bother anybody else, I don't think there'd be a problem. We wouldn't call it pollution, that. Oh, that's right. But again, as far as how much control the average line worker has about what uh, comes spewing out of a factory, I would suggest they don't have that much control uh, compared to a management. And, and to be clear, it isn't just the company that uh, can be fined. It's the decision makers. Now, generally, they'll be considered to be the senior executives, who, and there'll be evidence about when did you decide to do dump the waste or don't whatever. Don't you think, though, that... Uh and I realize I may be straying away from the center here. I seem to be straying towards Bob's side, but but 
in the interest well, of the discussion. Well, yeah, in the interest <laughs> of discussion. Don't, do you think either one of you that we might find there was less, um, how do I put this? There were fewer incidents of this kind of illegal decision making, pushing the envelope at the top if there were more pressure from society as a whole to say not to do it. And that pressure might very well come from those very workers in these companies who would say, you know, hey, I'm not going to work here. Uh, you know, th what you're doing is wrong, and I'm not going to work here, and my buddy Fred isn't going to work here, and my, my friend Mary's not going to work here, and we're going to let everybody know why we're not working here. D do you think that that kind of pressure might reduce the number of decisions that are made that kind of push that in. You're not advocating an illegal strike, I hope. Well, not a strike at all. No, <laughs> I don't think that's even a realistic type of pressure to expect. Nobody's going to give up their paycheck that puts their dinner on their table over political action, over pollution. But if they're uh, not, uh, not going to do that, are we ever going to find a solution to that problem? Absolutely. The, all the, the liability and the problem is totally on the government. Pollution is a totally... This, there is a social problem, pollution. Government is the only agency we have to regulate that kind of thing between us. And the only way you can do that is to enshrine private property rights so that people cannot pollute each other's properties. Um, governments have overridden those kinds of protections on property in order so that companies can pollute. And so when you give them permission to do so, and this comes back to the broken window theory, if you're not enforcing something, uh, people are going to start doing that even if it violates other people's property. Well, and it also and I would tend to uh, agree with Jim, though, to the extent that, and also... Uh, but he's agreeing with in. me. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> we don't have a show left anymore. But, <laughs> but I think that, uh, that it comes back to setting an example, and sometimes it may be that people have to show courage and take risks in order to set an example. I think that I, I had written down, actually, earlier, talking about uh, how do you get community respect for each other and make people not want to break laws, and I'm thinking, do you do it with a carrot or a stick, that that's sort of a traditional left-right distinction. What Gord brought up was the issue of hypocrisy and the more I thought about that I think yeah that's a that's a real problem at the root of it that I think the people who are the kids coming up who don't respect the law don't think that we respect the law either because we find ways around it but you know, I think the flaw in that argument is that that the, uh, the the sense the idea that the wealthy are above the law is nothing new I mean that's existed in, in this country as long as we've had a country and yet the the below that level below that sort of above the law level we've seen tremendous changes so I'm very uncomfortable with people who say, you know, one of the reasons why we have this climate of, of lawlessness and, and disdain for the law is because of this hypocrisy that, the, you know, that the wealthy are above the law. The wealthy have always been above the law. That's nothing new. Don't have to like it. Well, you know, at one time that was literally true because the wealthy were the nobles and, and people in state who were above the law, literally. They made the laws. Yeah. I think as time progresses, that's less and less true. When we say that they're above the law, we're not saying that we're going to let them off. We just treat them a little bit differently well, than yeah, we do. Yeah. In, in terms but of But the perception, per perception is, and I, I look to a case that I hate to refer to, but it's the classic one, is the O.J. Simpson case, where had he been a poor black man on the street, he would today be in jail. I don't think there's any question in anybody's mind. For in sure. fact, he might be on death row. Mm -hmm. But he was not a poor black man. He was a very wealthy black man. But was he above the law? Who, who, who was on that jury? Were those all real rich people who decided that he had to be let go? No, but I think in, in, in the sense that we're talking about here, I think people look at that and say the law did not apply to him as it did to other people. So in a sense, he was above the law. Technically, he wasn't, as we all know. It cost him millions of dollars to... Uh, 
to, sure. to, to get the result he wanted. And that's the very thing why people say they think he's above the law. He's not. He just has, he just has a lot of money in order to use every avenue the law affords him, whereas people who are poor... Jeff, you're smiling. You know, we got the lawyer smiling about oh, this. I'm trying to think of the, the phrase. I'm thinking about, you know, that law is there for everyone, but it's a little more there for... It's absolutely true, and if you know, if a person's very clever, he can defend himself in a courtroom. And, well, that's uh, another thing I talked about. Maybe be better than the, than the top lawyer in the country. Well, that's but, right. If you're so innocent, the more why do you need a good lawyer? Laws get, and the more silly reasons we let people get off of crimes for, uh, particularly social reasons that allow them to blame it on something else, um, I, I just don't see any problem or any abating of the crime rate. You know, the more I'm looking at this, the more let's look at let's look at this broken window theory literally. Let's talk about. I don't know if you ever remember when you were a little kid, if you ever broke a window in the house. Mm. Remember when we were kids, we saw an old abandoned house and it had a lot of broken windows in it. Well, that was like, oh, well, come, come on over and break some more. Exactly, water. exactly. You know, and if, but if you broke a window and you came back the next day and the window was fixed, boy, no, you weren't, you were going to think twice before you threw a ro rock in that window again. Because somebody, you knew somebody cared. Yeah. Somebody was there who cared and if they caught you, there was going to be some kind of consequence. Mm -hmm. But if it was just left alone and nobody reacted or did anything to it, well, then your behavior, you've just been given a license. But that um, comes back to another aspect of this, and, and it's something that I hadn't really considered with the Jim raised about what broken window may mean literally, and that is that it may mean communities getting more involved. And, and I look mm -hmm. at things like Neighborhood Watch and Crime Stoppers where, and, and I heard this all the time when I was involved with the police, was that the police are sort of like the thinnest veneer what of What are they going to do? Are they going to walk into a community guy's house and fix his window? in deciding that you're going to keep your community going. Your community's got to look out for each other. In London, at any given, well, we've got 400 cops for 400,000 people. Realistically, unless those 400,000 people are basically willing to go along with the law, the police can't do that much about it. Mm -hmm. That comes back to the Always community. the case. Always yeah. been true. No law can enforce anything if the public doesn't support it morally. Yeah. And, that's, and, and that's not wrong. That's and that's, that's an issue, too, because the more laws we have that the public does not support, the more disrespect the, gov the, the public has for laws, the less we respect these kind of, of laws as well. So, um, you know, it's the whole situation again, Jeff. You're, you're, you're running to this community solution. I, I just can't see. Uh, let's go literally again. This kid breaks a window on a house, and you're expecting, what, the community to go and fix that window? Or just some neighbor, oh, I see a broken window. I better rush and fix it. I think the only person that's going to do that is the owner of the house. But when you talk and he about wants to know that he's going to be protected. Well, he wants to know that it's not likely to get broken again. Right. That's another part of it. We have to pause for a moment. This is Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town here in 1290 CJBK. And this is Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer, a London lawyer, and uh, Bob Metz uh, from the Freedom Party. And they are regular contributors to this program on Wednesday mornings. And we're going to the phones with caller Gord. Good morning, Gord. Good morning. Yes, sir. I just wanted to call up and say that I, I think that uh, we should be focusing perhaps more on the fact that, that the law as it exists in Canada uh, is not respected, in my opinion, to the degree that it should be because of, well, for instance, drug laws. Mm -hmm. Uh Victimless crime laws, I think, breed disrespect because there's no victim. Mm -hmm. And I think when people see, uh, you know, people getting punished for uh, behavior which we disagree with or behavior that's not approved of because of our personal convictions, that, that I think uh, people don't respect the law. I was wondering if there's any thoughts on that. Well, Bob, you want to take well, a left on this one? Well, <laughs> no, I agree with Gord on this. In fact, it goes exactly. even further when you, when people see actual victims uh, not getting any sort of uh, respect from the law. 
you know, like 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 the like the landlord with the broken window who yeah. isn't getting it fixed by anybody and nobody's doing anything well, about just, it. Just written down restitution here with all kinds of little stars around it as being a big problem right now, and that is that uh, I think people do perceive. Well, that I thought it was a solution. Restitution could be a solution yeah, yeah. if it existed, right. but I don't think it does. Well, why doesn't it? Why can't we do that? It seems anybody you talk to about this, and I talk to lots of people about this issue many many times. Uh, this this is a recurring theme. Why don't we make Why don't we make the criminals pay for their crime? Not necessarily pay by doing time, but reach into their pockets and pay for the damage they've done. I'm for it, that. Well, I, I don't know anybody I, I, who isn't for that. So why why aren't we there? Okay, I, I think there. Are, I could suggest there are two reasons. One is that it takes somebody to come along and do something about it because we've had a historical, at least in the last uh, 50 years, system where we haven't done that. The idea is that we punish them through fines and stuff. Um, so somebody has to actually do it, come out and do it. But the second reason, I think, is that, uh, that that it's expensive to do because you have to follow up. You have to keep on top of the person. But I think, that, again, I think it would be a terrific idea, and I think we really missed the boat by not ensuring that the person who causes loss to a victim has to make good to that victim, like, not to uh, not to the government or anybody else. I, I had a personal experience in this regard. I was once assaulted, and the person who assaulted me also stole some property from me and everything and went through the court case. He got convicted, went through all, all this stuff. You know what the whole outcome of it was? A $50 fine. Mm. I didn't even get the 50 bucks. Well, and that's the worst part. That's you the know. worst part. You know, that why is it that if you lose, if somebody burgles, steals, steals a bunch of your stuff, they end up getting a fine, and the fine goes to the government. Right. It doesn't go to you. I don't right. understand yeah. that. So where's the justice? There's no justice in that whole process. Gord, appreciate you joining us today. Okay. Thanks very much. Guys, I want to uh, uh, take just one step in another direction because we have both of you here, and I'm really interested to know what you think about it. Story yesterday we talked about on Talk of the Town. In Toronto, the tragic death of a little two-year-old toddler who crawled out a window, uh, 14th floor of an apartment building, her parents' apartment. Um, the windows had been removed by a window replacement company. Uh, they had sent around a notice saying, this is going to happen on such and such a day. Um, please make sure your children, and I'm quoting here, are not underfoot. The idea meaning, uh, you know, keep them out of the way so they're not in the way of the workmen, etc., etc. Uh, this little child was supposedly being supervised by her teenage brother who looked the other way for a moment or two, whatever it happened, and she climbed out the window and, and fell 14 stories to her death. And that's a tragedy, and I don't think anyone would disagree that it's a tragedy. But the, uh, the story that came out of it, the wire service story and the story in the paper, talked as, uh, that, that was only half the story. The other half was talking about the potential liability of this window company. Because the window company's letter had apparently not said in so many words, you know, if your kids step out one of these windows and drop 14 floors, uh, they're going to die. It didn't say that. It simply said, we're taking the windows out, take appropriate precautions, make sure your kids aren't in the way, etc., etc. Um, fully half the story in the paper uh, dealt with that and the ramifications of it. And, and it struck me as exceedingly strange. That here's a situation, a tragedy happened, uh, in a moment's inattention by a mom or the big brother, whoever it was, the little girl dies, an absolute tragedy. And, and uh, so much public attention now focused on, well, maybe it's the window guy's fault, because they didn't tell people specifically, if your kids jump out a 14-story building, they're going to die. Just comments from either one of you about that. Well, I guess the, a couple of things. One is that, uh, I, I, as you know, I have a policy of not reading bad news, especially if it relates to children. So I saw the headline and quickly skipped to the next page because I don't want to know about this. It's too depressing. But I, I suspect that uh, part of the rationale for looking at something like that is that obviously something went wrong, and presumably people want to try and figure out ways to prevent it from occurring. And it's not as simple as saying the brother was an idiot. Um, Two-year-olds two are extremely quick, mm -hmm. and uh, the system broke down there somehow. Uh, one of the, the corollaries to that, however, from a civil law, 
law uh, standpoint is that two-year-olds aren't worth very much. So you can bet there's not going to be a big lawsuit about it. Uh, I remember doing a case... Uh, now, just before somebody gets offended, you're talking about in terms of precedence under the law and so on and suing and so on and so on. Yeah. In that sense, two-year-olds My, my voice is also laced with sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, that I, I did a case that uh, would be uh, 12 years ago now where a two-year-old fell through a railing uh, at a, um, a public facility in town here and was killed, and that case was settled for $1,500. Uh, it's higher than that now, but uh, it's not that anybody's going to rape, uh, re uh, get a bunch of money out of it. Bob, what about the idea that, that, I mean, it was Jeff says the two-year-olds can move very quickly. That's true, and, and that's probably what happened here. But people are already pointing fingers at the, at the, at the window guys, who seem to me are the least culpable of anybody involved in this thing. Well, that may be, but I don't know. I've worked in high-rise construction, and I just can't believe they'd even allow people in the apartment while they were removing these windows, especially up on the 14th floor. Mm -hmm. um, Unless you're sure-footed and you know what you're doing, you don't want to be up there when you're exposed to where you can just fall out. I, I think there might be some liability there. If it had just been a case of a, of a pre-existing window and the child fell out and they wanted to hold the manufacturer of the windows liable, that would be silly. But, uh, you know, it's hard to tell until you've actually seen what the circumstances there were. But don't you think uh, there's any requirement of individuals to exercise a certain amount of common sense? Absolutely. I mean, you and I know that if there's an open window on the 14th floor, you stay away from it. Sure. Do, do we need to be told? Does it need to be put in writing from the company? To, well, to the two-year-old doesn't know that, though, Jim. That's, that's but the, the two-year-old two wouldn't read the letter anyway. Well, that's right. But so the, the responsibility falls on the person who's responsible for the two-year-old. I remember reading an article uh, within the last year about flying and how most flying accidents occur as a result of human error. And the simple answer is to say, well, if you're a pilot and you make a mistake, you die, so what? It's thrown darn fault. However, we don't want people dying, so there's obviously a problem there. And the article was about how do we make it easier to fly planes? You know, uh, sure, it's the fault of the person who gets killed, maybe, but still, we, it's a problem. We've got to work on trying to fix it. It occurs to me, for instance, and I, again, I haven't read the articles, I don't know the details, but maybe if you are going up in these high-rises where there are lots of kids, maybe you should establish a daycare down in the lobby for the day or whatever. There may be things that don't cost that much that may take it, uh, set, take it the next step so that this just can't happen or is less likely to happen. Yeah, but where do you stop that? I mean, what, you know, you've got well, further along than this. The system but, didn't work. But where, well, did the system break down or did the parent break down? I mean, you know, the, the, ultimately, as, as Robert said, it's the parental responsibility. Did this parent not recognize that if their kid took a gainer out the 14th floor, she was going to die? But again, it takes a village to raise a child. And if a parent is an incompetent parent, we as a community have an obligation to try and prevent that from causing but the But this isn't the community that's being blamed. It's the window company that's being blamed. Oh, they're part of the community. Oh, Jeffrey. Oh, they are. Sure they, they are. are. They you're, were there. They were involved. You know, when you keep saying this, it takes a village to raise a child, I always wonder what you mean by that, Jeff. And, and I'm trying, starting to get a, sort of a picture of it here now. You're, you're saying that the village would, would have played what role in preventing this child's death? Um, what, telling the, the, manu or the, the, the window removing company uh, how to conduct their business or what? Well, what happens is that we get, as a, as a bunch of us, we put our heads together and try and figure out a way of it not happening again. I think about when I was growing up and the playgrounds were all paved and they had all these jungle gy gyms around that they would send us up on, and then we'd fall down and our, conk our heads on pavement. And they had all the swings made of steel, and we'd conk our heads on those too. And eventually it occurred to somebody, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We should have sand underneath the kids. You know, we should have plastic uh, swings. Uh, we have to get together and think about these things and say, where did the system go wrong? What can we do about it to make sure it doesn't happen again? And even well, though we can blame it on an individual, there is just common let's just make sense. sure it doesn't You're, happen again. That's not the community acting, again, as a, as a block of the community. That's just individuals in the community looking at a problem and solving it.
That's a different that's, thing. That's what I mean. But Bob, you, you said a moment ago you thought there might be some culpability. There might be some culpability well, there may for, be. The, for the window company. Uh, but how can uh, you say that? If with you're the, removing a window up on the 14th floor of a building, you've still got people in the unit. That's kind of weird in itself. Well, so should, should, we, should we have people standing at the side of busy streets when people are crossing busy streets, handing out a piece of paper saying, you should be aware that this is a very busy and dangerous street before you set foot in it? I mean, it, it seems to me that's, you know, that's the corollary to what you're saying. Um, it, it, no, it's not the same thing at all because normally... People are in the streets. They know what the risks are, and they're and they're down there under. Well, you don't their, think you know uh, what the risks are falling out of fourteen-story building? Well, again, a two-year-old doesn't. This is this is the issue. It wasn't a, an adult that fell out the window. But but but, but the and a two-year-old doesn't know that he that he can't be left unsupervised in the street either. I mean, you. But how then does the does the window company again have any culpability? I don't understand how do you get how you get there from where you are. The parent absolutely. But no, I'm, the, say, I'm the saying company? the parent is ultimately responsible, but I'm saying the window company. I just find it odd myself working in construction that they would allow people living in the unit when it when it was exposed to the open like that. Okay, That's let's just let's a go whole back other to, situation. Let's go back to the telephones with caller Emily. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. Hi there. Hi. Um, this is off the subject you're talking at right at the moment, but uh, it's one that amused me earlier about the urinating. Yes. And I was wondering how on earth you could make a black and white law out of that. Well, we have one right now. You're not allowed to do that. The, the question isn't about the law. It's very clear in the law. If a policeman sees you doing that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeffrey, they can go so far as to arrest you, can they not? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the law is already there. The question is about focusing resources on letting people know that it's just not socially acceptable to do that. But there's also a question about whether it should be a law. You know, we talked earlier about petty laws and whether they just read disrespect. Who's going to who's gonna pee on a sidewalk unless they really got to go? <laughs> well, that, 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 that's what I was getting at. It's, I, I, have, I saw it happen outside of a doctor's office. Yeah. Some poor old gentleman came out. He was, and must have had problems. Because yeah, he was, yeah. He, he was doing it beside a tree, and his wife was quite embarrassed, and she apologized to me. Yeah. And I said, so what? <laughs> well, in a situation like that, maybe there were some extenuating circumstances. But this, this wasn't there talking was, well, even if Let's take that situation. What would the government be talking about when they're using the word zero tolerance? Are they going to tolerate that? No, I, they're not. Under well, zero tolerance. I think that's ridiculous. And, and oh, well, this is what I'm getting at. Is, the, is, is, how, how, do you, how do you put a law like that in force? Well, you don't have a law specifically against public urinating or jaywalking or littering. The law has to relate to the proper use to which the public property is being used and you just have to, there has to be a judgment made on the on the part of the police officer whether someone is abusing public property uh, the situation you just described for example i think a police officer would look at that and say okay he might even help you out you know mm -hmm. um but that's looking the other way that's helping to break the I, then again you know that, there again that do we want a police approach or do we want a peace officer approach well and and i agree and with and you and it's and the and conduct that's the problem and there is a, an offense of public disorderliness for instance if you pee yeah. on someone else yeah. that's an well, offense exactly you don't need or, a law or, just or on their pigs. property or but on it, does, property. it comes back though to 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 the role of the police in in the society and this is another thing that relates back to the broken window thing if you, if you study some of the theory behind that and some of the theory that's grown out of it one of the ideas is the police officers are there to to reflect the mores and the legal standards of the community that the criminal code is fine and it's it's it, it's there and it can be used but it should not preempt um it should not common sense yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. And, and it should and it should not preempt the the uh the mores the the generally accepted mores of that of that community 
Now, you get into some problems there because you say, well, what if the community sanctions things that are patently really illegal that we really don't want? The community says it's okay. That's where you run into a problem. Yeah. Emily, thanks for the call today. But um, can we try? Let's put this to both of you. Can we trust the community then? If, let's, let's go back to where we started on the broken windows idea. And the idea behind that, again, is to create a sense in the community that the law does matter, that the law is important, and that we all benefit when the law is upheld. Um, is there a role to be played by the community that's kind of goes beyond the law that says, okay, the criminal code is there, fine, but we don't want we don't want police officers arresting this old gentleman who had a problem and had to step behind a tree. We don't want that happening. We don't want our kids caught spraying graffiti. We don't want them going to jail. Maybe we want them to get one upside the head when they get home, or maybe or go fix it, or go, go fix, fix it, or something it. like that's that. Yeah, start. yeah. But but how do we, Jeff, is particularly asking you as a lawyer. Um, how do you make sure that the criminal code is not ignored in the pursuit of, of community goals that may not ultimately be the, the safest or the healthiest for that community? The criminal code is our criminal code. It's ours as a community through our government. That's the vehicle we use. If it doesn't reflect what we want, we should change it. We're going to pause for just a second. We're coming back with more on Talk of the Town. This has been left, right, and center on Talk of the Town. Traditionally, at the end of the show, we give each of the guys a couple of, uh, or a few moments to maybe recap or say anything they want to say, add to the, uh, the conclusions today. Jeff, you started off the discussion. We'll let you go first here. Okay. Well, broken window theory, in, in a nutshell, is something we don't need. That Right now, the police do a good job in upholding all, all of our laws and should continue to do that. Uh, that the, if we want to look at ways of reducing crime, I, I think it really is a matter of getting the community as a whole uh, to persuade each other that we don't want to break laws. I don't think that uh, going by the broken theory, or broken broken theory, <laughs> broken window theory it means that you're going to give up on going after the big stuff. I just think that uh, the whole issue really boils down to whether the laws respect the individuals and whether individuals respect the laws. It's a two-way street. I think when you do have more and more laws that disrespect individuals, and like, like a lot of the uh, victimless crime type laws that, that the earlier caller Gord mentioned, um, you're going to have more and more people disrespect the law. Gentlemen, thank you. A pleasure as always. We'll see you next Wednesday. See you then. Uh, and we'll see you tomorrow for the next edition of Talk of the Town. For Jeff Schlemmer, Bob Metz, Ryan Spence, Don Kelly, I'm Jim Chapman saying please take care of each other. Mind how you go. Enjoy the snow. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.